coming up on this episode of White Wine Question Time. The runners came into my room to tell me that Prince was listening to my album from his dressing room. I, I can't stop. To this day, I'm still like... I, I was absolutely floored. I was so blown away at that point. I just couldn't believe it was happening. I'm, I'm, I'm watching the crowd kind of part and I'm seeing someone coming through the crowd, being led by someone else. Well, when I realised who it was, I was like, no, no, it cannot, this cannot be happening. Hello and welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week is one of this country's greatest voices, a voice so great. It's filled our charts, our West End stages, our TV screens, radios and venues the world over for more than 28 years now. Her latest album is called The Fifth Chapter and it's a nod to her recent 50th birthday at which arguably she finds herself at the very top of her game. As well as her work as a recording artist, she's also earned her stripes in musical theatre, winning an Olivier Award this year for Best Supporting Actress in Sylvia at the Old Vic. And she's also topped the bill in shows like The Bodyguard, The Drifters Girl, Cats, Memphis, and she made her movie debut in Cinderella, starring alongside Camilla Cabello, Billy Porter and James Corden in 2021. Born and raised in Wolverhampton, Birmingham, to Jamaican parents, a love of singing grew as she found her voice at her local Pentecostal church before going on to study for a degree in theology and philosophy in Cheltenham, which is where she was when she released her first single, a white label called Flavour of the Old School, which found a following in clubs, then spins on the radio and eventually a place in the charts. Well, that was in 1995, and she's pretty much been working flat out ever since. In 2012, she married her long-term boyfriend, James O'Keefe. They met after working on a shoot together. She was the star, he was the electrician, and sparks flew. They live together in North London with their dog, Zane. In October, she's going to be leaving them both at home to head out on a string of live shows across the UK, her biggest tour to date. I've been wanting to get her on the pod for so long. Can't wait to talk to her. Let's dial her up, shall we? It's Beverly Knight. How are you? I am well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. But arguably not as good as you. I mean, your 50th birthday celebrated with the mother of all live shows at a time in your life when you are top of your game, Bev. Congratulations. It's so good to see you flying. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. You know, I just think that getting to 50... Um, as a woman, people expect you to kind of start to diminish yourself and start to yeah. slowly withdraw from public life or something. And I'm Apologetically not... shuffle backwards out of life, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And my thing is, I'm going the other way. Going the other way, this is when I'm striding into my power. This is when all women are striding into their power because you leave all your neurosis and all of that behind and it just... Life feels really, really positive right now. And, you know, I wanted to celebrate that. So for me, the best form of celebration um, is not just having a party. For me, it's celebrating with music, with actual, you know, a band and, and live music. So so that's what I did. Yeah, um, talk me through that. I mean, it, it wasn't like a sort of, you know, if you, you know, shall I take your coat type party? It was a clear the <laughs> dance floor, Beverly's on stage, live band. How many people? there to watch i think there's about five six hundred people there and it was absolutely rammed so that was just great we just rocked it just got on stage with the band and just had fun and there was a cake and we had you know my best friend dj monroe played and it was brilliant it was so much fun i just loved every minute of it Oh, and the last time I saw you was on the run up to your birthday. We yeah. found ourselves in the same restaurant. I was with my girlfriend, Tamsin Althway, and you were there with James and Zane and you were having lunch. And we came and sat at a table not far from you. And we ended up going, oh, Bev, hi, hi. Pull the tables together. We ended up yes. eating together, didn't we? Which was lovely. We did. It was so Do you nice. remember what uh, who else was in the restaurant and, and how that lunch ended? Um... I know that Freddie Lundberg was there as well, the other side of us. 
you remember? So, so we, Tamsin and I had booked a late table. And by the time we'd put our first order, you know, our order in, it was sushi, right? Um, they were like, oh, the kitchen's closed. And Tam has the most remarkable appetite. Like she is, she, her, her appetite for everything in life is voracious, especially food, right? And she was like, do you remember going, oh God, I'm still hungry. I could carry on eating. And then Freddie Lundberg's table to our left, where they're having a perfectly lovely, quiet, keeping themselves to themselves meal. Yeah. He'd left what looked like a boat of sushi. <laughs> Oh went, my god, that's right. Do you remember? Right. And like while we yes. were chatting, I could see a side eye in this sushi. And in the end, I thought, she's gonna go in a minute. I know her so well. She's gonna go, You're not gonna have that. <laughs> so she goes, Sorry, are you not gonna have that? And he went, No, 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 we're done. She went, I'll chuck it over. We ate all his lunch. Do you remember? God, in front of I him. <laughs> that was so funny. Yeah. Oh my god. It was no, very generous. I- was, that was, um, I mean, yeah, we ate and we ate and we ate and then you guys proper went in. Well, Tamsin definitely went in. <laughs> <laughs> On Freddy's leftovers. Exactly. You know what? It's got to be done because otherwise it was just going to get wasted. So. Waste not, want not. Totally. <laughs> totally, totally. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And you'd not long finished working on Starstruck, where uh, on the last season that you did, you were working alongside Shania Twain. I mean, we're going to get into the number of legends that you've worked in and around, but Shania, that must have been a bit special, Bev. Oh, that was nice. She's so nice, sounds so ineffectual. It was brilliant. She is such a lovely lady. She's really earthy, um... I mean, she's a global icon, but normal. Yeah. If you, you know what I mean. She's she's not she's not starry in that way. Um, although she's a huge star, and I really appreciated that from her. Um, I think probably because she's Canadian, you know, kind of earthy people generally. But she was lovely and really, really up for a laugh and. Just do it normally, gir- girly things, you know, looking at the jewellery. Oh, where'd you get that? Oh, I like your hair. Oh, where's the dress from? You know, just girly chats. Yeah. Men talking about music. And then, of course, when she talks about music, she goes and talks about all the friends she's got and, and other legendary people that she's been around. And they're all in her phone book. I mean, it just extraordinary she's she's um she's special that one i what do you remember years and years ago um when we were both mm. starting out vh1 divas do you remember divas i totally remember that right so i was working at vh1 at the time and i got sent out to cover divas every year in new york and i remember i think it was the first year actually i mean the lineup was awesome and she looked you know, like when you look like a, a deer in headlights in as much as she just couldn't believe the company she was keeping. It was Carol King at the piano. Aretha was the lead out diva. There was Celine, um, Mariah, and then Shania. And they all yeah. came together and sang, I think it's Natural Woman. Yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, it was a remarkable thing to watch. I mean, A, all of those women collectively, but for some reason I was just very much drawn to Shania because um, she she just, yeah, she just, just, just didn't have the same sort of cocksure bravado that maybe a Mariah had at that point. Yeah, I think because she was, I mean, the album, you know, was it Come On? I can't remember. Come On Over. Come On Over, that's right exploded around the world just exploded i think it's the biggest selling single album by a a female artist artist yeah just mad i mean crazy sales and that must have been like a whirlwind for her and you've got all the others who have had you know serious success up until that point and she was like the newest one in in the in the lineup Join the ranks of the uber, uber, you know, famous and, and global icons. And I think she was still kind of going, oh, my God. But that that makes her endearing, you Doesn't know? It? Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I thought she was great. I really did. And, you know, I've seen many a moments, certainly over the last few days while I've been researching this interview, watching mm. you do much the same. I mean, this is, is this your ninth album now, Bev? Yeah. Nine. <laughs> I know, God, it's mad. <laughs> it's what? mad. 
can't believe it. I can still remember, you know, working on album number one. I can still remember some of those studio experiences and that. And now here I am, album number nine, and it's nearly 30 years on. It's nuts. 28 years. 28 years. It's mad. It is mad. And if you'd have told yourself 28 years ago that this would be how you would be looking back on your CV, sat here at 50, you know, where you've got a movie alongside Camilla Cabello and James Corden with Cinderella on mm. your CV. You're going back into the West End next year in Sister Act with Jennifer Saunders. I mean, and and, the, and a ninth album. It's it's pretty pretty special, and I I don't I don't take any of it lightly. I really don't. I know. This is a difficult industry to navigate. And when you're a woman, it's really difficult. When you're a woman of colour, there's another layer of difficulty there. You know, um, it, it's every step of it, you've got to really dig deep and just keep believing, keep trusting in in the process and everything. But the, the public just keep coming out and supporting me and showing me that they're they're still interested in what I do and who I am and what I'm about and, and I'm so so grateful for it well you know what it is though Bev it's just that you can't deny you you just can't deny your voice and when you wrap that in the the personality that you have with the work ethic that you put you know, front and centre of everything. You are undeniable. And there's, and it's absolutely right that you should be um, one of the most successful and um, I, I don't want to sound vulgar here, but one of the highest paid leading ladies in the West End as well, because I think that's significant for all of the reasons that you've just listed. No, oh, well, thank you. I, I, I believe in just, you know, doing the work because eventually down the line... It, you, you, you get the rewards and I don't just mean the financial rewards I mean um, the, the, the accolades and just getting the opportunities to do bigger and bolder and more challenging work I, I really believe if you just keep going it comes to you in the end that that for me has been true all my life it, some some areas have, have been it's been a longer journey than perhaps I anticipated when I first started but um I've just, I've, I've enjoyed the work and I've, I've discovered that it's not just the goal because once you've got the goal, it's like, it's wonderful. But the minute you've got it, there's a new goal that yeah. you set because actually the journey to get there is what we really enjoy. Mm. And sometimes it doesn't feel that way, but that is, that is the truth of it. Yeah. Get there. The road to getting there is as exciting as getting there. <laughs> and actually, it's, it's something of a recurring theme in, in recent conversations on this podcast. But I think you get to this stage and just still being here is success. And, and that, it sounds really trite to say that. But so many people get lost along the way. It's like, you know, you, it's like you are at the end of the, the, you know, a monster marathon, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's true. You know, I I started, as, as we've said, you know, a long time ago now. And along the way, there's been a lot of people who have been on this journey with me. Some have, um, you know, gone and done other things. Some, sadly, have checked out altogether um, for various different reasons. You know, I'm still on that path. I'm still on that road. And... Um, I just think success, when people talk about measuring success, they often will cite social media followers or, you know, yeah. and how records you've sold and, 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 and all this kind of thing. But that's not the only measure. You know, how, how much have you influenced people who are now coming through? Or have, are you still someone who people want to hear from, mm. you know? Um, that's a measure of success as well. You can be around a long, long, long time. The fact that people care and want to hear from you is so, so special. And, and I take that as a win every time, every time. Well, let's measure some of, of 
your success with hopefully using a tool for measurement that feels more fitting. Can we explore some of your dream moments that chart uh, your journey to your 50th year? Are you ready for your first question? Yes, let's do it. Dream moments. I want to drill into the ones that chart your story for you. The ones that still put your jaw on the floor when you think about them. And I want to give you the first one uh, to run with, which is a 16-year-old Beverly Knight who's on her way to Manchester to see her hero, Prince, perform. She's lied to her parents to be there. She's, she's, she's not a disobedient child. So this is, you know, this is big. And she gets there and there he is, the guy she idolises, performing. And she says to herself, 16-year-old Beverly, I don't know how, but one day I'm going to be on stage with him. And then I was. Oh, I cannot explain that feeling of thinking to myself, I, I didn't know about the word manifestation then. I didn't no. understand. All I knew was somewhere inside of me, I was absolutely confident that that was going to happen. I had no clue how, no clue what. I mean, because at that point, you're like Beverly from Wolverhampton, right? Yeah, I was just Bev from Wolverhampton. But I, I looked at that man on that stage, you know, a huge stage. It was um, Manchester Main Road. Um, wow. Old um, Manchester City uh, football ground. And I just thought, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. The music hit me. It spoke to me. It always had. Oh, yeah. And then all those years later, there, there, there I was face to face with him. Not just once, many, many, many times. I mean, so let's rewind. Like rather aptly in 1999, you met him. <laughs> and yeah. and no. what was he listening to when you met him? So when I met him, initially when I met him, um, I met him at the Mermaid Theatre in uh, Blackfriars mm -hmm. in London. He was promoting an EP and um, the Larry Graham, who was the bass player in his band at the time, invited me to jump on stage and just kind of jam and dance behind him. There was a few of us who were invited up, but I thought my life was made at that point. And then after that, I was um, introduced to him really briefly after the show. Um, the next time I saw him, which was a little bit later on in the same year, in 1999, um, we were both doing a TV show, a millennium version of The Tube, which mm. I know you remember and we're all, God, The Tube was such an iconic show. Yeah. Uh, but Prince was there and I was there, loads of incredible people there. But the runners came into my room to tell me that Prince was listening to my album from his dressing room. I, I can't stop. To this day, I'm still like... I'm like, I almost feel like I'm, I'm a bit hyperventilating for you just at the thought of it. How massive is that, Bev? It's the biggest deal of my life up until that point. I just couldn't believe that... It's one thing to meet your idol and go, oh, my God. But the fact that he had the album and was listening to it. Mm. That was unbelievable. You know, you know, I just still to this day, I can't believe, you know, Prince had a copy of Prodigal Sister. He was listening to it. <laughs> oh my but it, it gets bigger and better than that, right? So just when you think, you know, stick a fork in me, I'm done. I can die and go to heaven quite happily. Yeah. yeah. Fast forward however many years, I think it was couple more years, wasn't it? A couple of years when he, he asked you to be his tour support. And he did this incredible yeah. show. At the, was it the O2? It was at the O2. So this yeah. is two. Yeah. So, so, so almost a, like a, how, how many years later? I mean, a long time later. A long time later. Almost eight years. Wow. Almost eight years later. My name comes up, you know, and I get this phone call. Prince wants you to open for him at the O2. You are? <laughs> what? Like, seriously, can you remember where you were when you took that call and how you felt? Yeah, I was at home 
and um, I was in the living room and yeah, my, my then manager said, are you sitting down? And I was like, oh, 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 yeah. Uh, Prince wants you to open for him at the O2. <laughs> I just screamed. I screamed. I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. I mean... But then, right, so, so so not only are you his support act, but he's doing something that he's never done before and, and never did again, right? He did 21 nights um, on the run and every night the show was different. I mean, just just that alone is so... I mean, when I think of who else might do something like that, you're thinking about David Bowie. You're talking about not even a handful of artists that could. And and he chooses you to warm the crowd up for that experience. That's that's very complimentary. It really, really was. I, I was absolutely floored. I was so blown away at that point. I just couldn't believe it was happening. And the thing that was funny was I had tickets to go and see. <laughs> I had a few tickets, you know, for a few different nights because I was going to go back again and again. And then it was like, oh, well, I'm going to open for him. Great. That's so, Bev, that's so brilliant. You were asked to open on the tour that you'd already bought tickets for. That's just lovely. I know. I was honestly just so, so blown away. It was magnificent. He, he, I mean, I, I was lucky enough to be working around him at that time where I would be invited to do things like the after show parties. Uh, I remember going to one of his after shows. It was the first ever MTV Awards in Berlin. And the word went out at the end of the awards, Prince is doing an after show. Prince is doing an after show. Prince is doing an after show. And it went around. It was like that. There was that, you know, it was, you, you know, that that the people that were invited were, were so select and so few. And I just couldn't believe that I was like, you know, I was, I was, I was asked to go in and we, you get in there and it's like Michael Hutchins was on stage or DJing. I can't remember. George Michael was there, Prince. And, and those nights were just long and sweaty, but so musical. It's like the music just, just, just took you somewhere else. The jamming, the collaborations. And he got you in on those as well, didn't he? Yeah. So when I finished my support slot, he grabbed me um, as I was coming off stage. I mean, I was going off stage to literally turn around and go back out there to watch his set. But before all of that happened, before I got a chance, he said, I want you to um, come and do the after show with me. And I was, the first thing I thought was, this, this can't be happening, this can't be happening. And then I thought, he's doing an after show, I'm so going to be there. <laughs> I can't. I'm gonna be at the after show. This is insane, you know. A legendary after show. He's always doing these after shows, and I'm gonna be on stage. So I did. Um, got up on stage at the uh, Indigo, and me and my band and were playing. But what floored me about that was I was playing "Keep This Fire Burning," singing it. And in the wings, I could hear this other guitar. And I, I know what my guitarist, you know, does. I know his style. I know his style of playing. And I'm hearing two different guitars. I'm like, who's that? And then I'm like, it can't be. It can't be. I look in the wing. I can still see it now, Jesus. I look over my right shoulder. Prince is in the wing playing along to keep this fire burning. And then walks out playing <gasps> along. And the crowd go mental, oh. mental, mental. Wow. I want to go mental, but I can't because I'm singing. Um, and all my band are like playing and looking at him like this. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is crazy. This is crazy. Um, and he stayed on for a while and, and, and just jammed Keep This Fire Burning with me. And then it was kind of his set. So... It was so fluid. I, I, I wish I could explain this in better language, but it was so fluid. His band took over and my band withdrew, but Prince wouldn't let me go off the stage. I had to stay there. And then we just sang and jammed and whatever for a good, it must have been three hours. Yeah. And I totally get what you're trying and, yeah, I'm struggling to articulate because I was doing exactly the same, Bev. Once you're there, you can't believe the musicality 
that just falls out of everybody he invites onto the stage. And, and I don't know, it's just something in the water. Everybody just seems to be able to go with the jam. It was great. I mean, it, it was a spectacle to behold. And in so many ways, your 50th birthday um, after show party reminded me of those nights, those early hour club gigs, um, you know, in the wee small hours of the morning, because it, it felt like that was what you were replicating the night of your 50th. God, thank you. That was that was the feeling I wanted. I wanted, that's why I chose the venue that I chose because I, I wanted people to feel as though they were all jammed in and it's just the music hits you. And we're, yes, I'm on stage, but it's, it's relaxed, it's fun. It's, you know, a bit rough and ready in terms of... Um, the, 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 you know, who haven't got slick lighting and all this kind of thing. Doesn't it's matter. The music, the music, and the music is the thing that speaks, and that's what I wanted. And it was just wonderful. It was so wonderful. I, 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 one of the best times, you know, and nights of, of my whole life and career, and just one of my favorite experiences of being on stage was my 50th my own 50th <laughs> there you go before we move off of prince there was one last dance that he asked you to join him for and it was pretty prestigious he yeah. uh flew you to los angeles to perform at his home with him at his post oscars party and put you on stage alongside him and you earned a standing ovation from Quincy Jones who is just a musical genius and Stevie Wonder I read was so moved by your vocals that he got out of his chair left his table snaked through the crowds and came up on stage and joined you is that showbiz myth or showbiz fact Stevie Wonder came on that stage, got on that stage, and uh, you could have knocked me down with a feather. I, I'm on stage singing. This is already surreal. You thought Prince was like the pinnacle and then you Stevie wondered. Exactly. exactly. I'm on stage singing. There's myself, the other two singers, Shelby J, Miss Jones, who was BV's uh, background singers for, for Prince. And... Um, I'm, I'm, I'm watching the crowd kind of part and I'm seeing someone coming through the crowd, being led by someone else. Well, when I realised who it was, I was like, no, no, it cannot, this cannot be happening. The, the great and good of Hollywood are on the, 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 the floor. Yeah. I'm on this little riser with Prince with Prince, hello. You know, <laughs> just just Prince. Out and Stevie Wonder's about to jump on stage. So I see him, I, I watch him, I'm, I'm following him with my eyes, I'm watching him. And he gets on the stage on my left. So he's all the way to my left, Prince is centre, I'm slightly to the right and behind. And we go into a whole Stevie Wonder set with Prince at the front playing guitar and me and Shelby and Miss Jones just singing away and and the crowd loving their life and the blinking, you know, the Cohen brothers are there with their statuesque going mental. <laughs> Did anyone yeah. film it, Bev? Do you know, I I don't think so. In the house. But I... It's one of those things where I know that the photographer, Randy St. Nicholas, was taking pictures at the O2. And I know that because a coffee um, book, coffee table book came out um, with pictures from that whole experience. And that was when I realised that the O2 gig, the um, sorry, the Indigo gig was recorded because there was a CD in the back of it with that recording wow. of me, Prince, and was. Rocksteady, and that's on Spotify now, which um, is absolute pride for me. Is it? Oh my god! What I'm going to go and listen to that as soon as we finish this. If you look for Indigo Nights, um, it's there. But um, wow, I, I don't know if that post Oscars party was filmed or whatever. But I, I just wonder if 
someone like Randy St. Nicholas, the famous photographer, or someone took pictures. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't oh, think... Bev, I'm going to try and find out. And if there is one, it's my belated 50th birthday present to you in a frame. <laughs> <laughs> if you find out, send a picture on to me. And I've been desperate for visuals. I've got the audio, but I don't have the visuals. Oh. So I have to lead people to the audio to say, it really happened. Listen, here it is. And um, luckily for me, um, years later, you know, this year I discovered that Kate Blanchett was at that actual party and said, I saw you. I saw you and I heard you. And I was like, oh, my God, see, see, I wasn't dreaming. I wasn't tripping. (laughs) (laughs) But that wasn't the only night where a musical god kind of just put their huge stamp of approval on you. That had already come very, very early in your career when David Bowie t- started telling people, people that really mattered, that there was a new girl that they got to listen out for. She's really good. He even gave you the nickname Little Aretha. And when David Bowie gives you that as a nickname and turns up at your showcases, it, I mean, it, it, opened, it opened ears and eyes that would never have been available to you otherwise. Yeah, it was, I owe so much to David Bowie. He went above and beyond. He didn't have to do any of those things. He didn't have to turn up um, and see me performing at the Jazz Cafe. I'll never forget looking up at the balcony and going, David Bowie's here, Iman's there. Iman, oh my God. Chair, and she's going mental. Wow. The he- what the hell? And this is, this is like you know, in the in the later nineties, uh, you know, early doors for me. Yeah. But I think in so many ways, Bev, you know, they gave they gave you their support because you were special, and they probably you know. Prince and David Bowie had seen how difficult it is for young women, women of colour, to really fight their way to the front of the queue. So they helped you because you're good. But you know what? I'm so grateful. But at the same time, it's like, but they didn't have to, but no. they chose to. And that, I can't tell you how, how full my heart to this day still is that these huge stars would do something like that for me who they who they didn't really know you know they just knew my voice and and you know what it did and 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 that and it it was for me it was that generosity of spirit that I learned from from both of them just how you know kind they were to share their space with me and um, in, in Prince's case, you know, literally, and in, in David Bowie's case, you know, using his considerable influence to try and influence other people to get turned on to what I was doing. I mean, it's, that's, that says everything about those guys. Yes, I understand, you know, they believed in my talent and I'm, for that I'm so grateful, but so many artists don't do that and wouldn't do that, no. you know, or might or might say a nice comment, but keep it moving. But they actually kind of stood up for me. And and that says so much about the kind of men that they were. Mm. Really, really does. Yeah, they kind of parted the sea for you, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. They really did. And um, I've, it's a lesson that I've learned, you know, when you get to a, a point in your career where you have a chance to help people or influence something, do it because huge people did that for me, you yeah. know? Absolutely. And even later on in your career, another, another you know, demigod in his own right, Andrew Lloyd Webber, you know, at a point when you're taking on roles in the West End, he puts the word out there that that's the voice I want to hear singing some of my songs. His, his endorsement, yet again, helped you to bed into a world that might have been side-eyeing you on the way and going, oh, here they are, another one from the charts, thinking they can do this. And guess what? Turns out you can. <laughs> no, I mean, exactly. And, and I'm so glad you put it in that, in that way because um, my first show was The Bodyguard. And when I took that on, um, 
people understood that vocally they could you know it made sense they could see the connection i i knew the songs they were in my register you know all the rest of it but people didn't know about my acting background and um and it was still amateur you know what i mean so even with an acting background that was amateur that it's a big leap to then star in a west end show where people around the world are going to be flying in to to see you and expect a certain level yeah. of excellence. Now I'm someone who's prepared to put in the graft, um, and I knew that that was going to be the prevailing attitude, and it, and it was, and it bubbled through a couple of times. You know, who is this? You know, thinking they can just jump up on a stage and and and, and do this like the rest of us have trained so hard. And it was because people had trained so hard that I thought, right, I I have to dig deep and I've got to work hard and earn the respect of these people because I can't just sw swan in and think, yeah, 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 I'm a name and all the rest of it. Not going to work because not everybody can do theatre and do repeat performances night after night after night. It's not easy. And I had to work my way into that and really, really, as I keep saying, dig deep to, to be able to find those reserves to do it. Theatre is not for the faint-hearted. Musical theatre really isn't for the faint-hearted. doesn't matter how good your voice is. It's not about that. It's about the, the, um, the, the, the tenacity. It's about the sustainability of your vocal and um and the graft it's eight yeah. shows a week it's a lot <laughs> it's a lot you've got to really put the, the 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 work in but thank god you know um i started to really earn the respect of of people in theater and then doing memphis was a, a, a joy that was the next show which um I was surprised I, I got a, an, an Olivier nomination for because it was only my second show. And I was like, oh, my God, OK, I, I, maybe I, I really can make a go of this thing, you know. Um, but it was when I was doing Memphis and Andrew Lloyd Webber phoned me to say, I want you to be in Cats. I sat up very straight. <laughs> <laughs> You were, you were Chris. Is it Grisabella you played? I played Grisabella, so I sang Memory. Yeah. Now, it's a funny role in so much as Grisabella comes on, she does a little bit, and then she slinks off again, and she comes on again and does a little bit and then slinks off. She doesn't have lots and lots of... No, it's, 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 it's a moment per act, isn't it, really? That's it. It's just a little bit... You know, so I'm I, a lot of the time I was watching the show from the wings. There's a bit where I start I start off everybody together, and then I become Grisabella. So I'm like a standard cat, and then I become Grisabella. So I have to go back to my dressing room and put on the makeup and all of that. Then you see me. I oh know, mad. And then you see me, <laughs> and. Um, it, it's it's a really really a wonderful moment because all the other cats hate her and then she slinks off then she's back and she slinks off and then I sing memory and I sing it twice in the show there's a there's a short version where um I'm singing it just in act one and then when I come on and sing it in act two I sing it for all I'm worth to the other cats really and it's it's a gorgeous, gorgeous song. And I got to sing that night after night after night, eight shows a week. And I just loved it. It was the most glorious thing. And to this day, you know, that was the moment where around the theatre world, you know, here and Broadway, people were like, okay, we we really have to take this woman seriously. And then came Sylvia. And they really did, because not only were you nominated for an Olivier, you won it. I won the Olivier. I, I so special, so special. Kate, I cannot tell you how special that felt. You know, at that point, it had been my my tenth year of being in theatre. I'd done, you know, 
quite a few shows and it was my third nomination and I looked around the room and one of my mates, Marisha Wallace, was also up for Best Supporting in the same category as me. She's, you know, very, very established and, 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 and she's so good, you know, so great. And I thought, well, we'll see what happens. And just there were so many huge people in the room. I just thought, well, let's see what happens. I've got the nomination, three times nominated. That's that's great. That's a really good position to be in. Well, when they called my name, I just couldn't believe it. Could not believe it. It, it took a minute for it to really sink in. And it was my, you know... James was straight on his feet and then I kind of slowly got to my feet because I was just like, this is, this is surreal. This is actually, this is actually happening. Oh my God, I've won an Olivier. And yeah, <laughs> it's it just one of the great moments of my whole career. It was wonderful. So many brilliant moments, Bev. I mean, we we started this question with 16-year-old Beverly from Wolverhampton on a coach to Manchester to see Prince. And now look, you know, what a journey no. it's been. Yeah, yeah, it really has. It's been the most wonderful ride, you know, of my life. And it's it's not just all the high points, you know, there have been challenging times, when um, just before the, the take that and before uh, Prince, you know, that whole period of, of um, leaving Parlophone and, and kind of thing. setting up on your own label. That's right. I was like, what do I do now? What happens? This is it's hard. You know, I had to dig deep. But in those moments came magic. Yeah. That takes me really nicely to my next question, because that's exactly where I wanted to go. I wanted to go to some of your riskiest moments to find the magic that sit beneath them. So what do you consider to have been your riskiest moments? The moments that, that you've just touched on there where, you know, we, we, we're jumping around to some of the biggest moments across, you know, a 28 year career. Not every day is busy and bustling with achievements. Sometimes the months and years can stretch with very little activity. How, have they been your, your, your hardest and riskiest moments, do you think? The first time I had a, a, a risky moment was leaving the, the first record label, um, which was Dome Records, um, and hoping to sign to Parlophone Records. Um, it was a long uh, legal process, lots of wrangling, lots of, you know, when you sign a contract, there's lots of things, ways in which you're tied in. So all of that needed to be untangled. And it took a long time. And I'd had this initial success and I sat there thinking, it's all going to disappear. I've kind mm. of started, I've stopped while this whole legal thing is going on and people are going to forget who I am. They're not going to care. Oh, my God. And I sat watching um, in the interim period for me, Shola Amma came along, you know, this young, great voice, gets to number one with you might need somebody and it's all taking off and everything. And along comes Kelly LaRocque, mm. uh, you know, with, with her career, um, my love. Mm. And then, you know, you've got other groups who are coming, you know, during this time. And it just felt really, really tricky. Like, well, you were at the you were in the kind of foothills of your career then, so you feel like you're building on quicksand. It's a very different story now. You've got five five chapters, five acts under your belt, as 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 the album says. But then it was a fragile start, wasn't it? And you were set against a backdrop of you know record companies could literally silence an act. This was something that both Prince and George Michael were very vocal in in dragging and taking through the courts. It was they they felt it was you know. Um, a restraint of their trade, their ability to take their intellectual property and, and put it where they wanted to, to own their work. Um, so you had all of that going on as well. So you were quite right, I think, to be fearful in that climate. I was. I was really fearful thinking 
this has to work because this is all I'm gambling on. You know, I had my degree. I was, you know, good girl. Um, you know, got me education, and 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 I was sensible. You know, I did all the sensible things, but I was. This is this was it for me, and I was determined that it was going to work. I didn't. You know, I I just had so much hope and belief, but I was full of fear. And it was when I saw other people just kind of doing what they doing and, and doing it really well and having huge success, you know. Um, uh, um, just, it felt like I was being left behind. Yeah. And then, and then, finally, it got resolved. Finally. So the first song that I came out with was Made It Back because that's how I felt. I mm. felt like I'd come from a place called nowhere, which was a no man's land of waiting for me to, to go again. And the public were there once again. The wonderful public were there ready and waiting for me. And when that song hit, it hit hard, you know, in, in, in the clubs and, 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 and that. Um, but it had an even bigger impact than even my first single, Flavour of the Old School, um, which was a really big kind of club hit. This really went in and, and, and the, the, the mainstream started to yeah. get in. It, it was proper chart heartland, wasn't it? That's right. And so all my fears at that point were, were, were settled. But that was a really, really hairy moment where um, between all the legal wranglings and all the rest of it, you know, my, my future new home at Parlophone, they could have just said, this is a lot of hassle, can't be bothered, yeah. nah. Or, you know, the guy that wants to sign you or the woman that wants to sign you gets another job somewhere else, is fired, somebody else comes in, they go, no, we want our own people. I mean, that's the business, you know. It's really hard to have anything like a controlling hand in your own career. That's right. Well, actually, what happened to me is um, once I signed that deal... The man who was responsible, Mark Share, the man responsible for fighting in my corner, getting me that deal, getting me there, left to go and join music publishing. He went to the other side of the music industry. Oh, no. And so I found myself signed to a label with people who didn't necessarily know anything about me, mm. um, but knew I must be half decent because a few kind of tastemakers had talked about me and um yeah so they took a punt and made it back you know came out and did what it did and then thank god david bowie started talking about me so it all started again that was a challenging moment where I honestly didn't know what was going to happen and it could have gone either way for me. Once you have those moments, though, and they are the kind of sweaty upper lip moments, the, oh, my goodness, I don't have a plan B moments, you never feel fear like that twice, do you? Because once you've worked through it once, you start to reframe fear as opportunity, challenge. It becomes less scary and, um, I don't know, I think you know, as you get older, you start to roll your sleeves up in the face of it and bit more kind of like, oh, well, come on then. You could not be more spot on because the next time that happened was when I was leaving Parlophone and I was a bit like, uh, and I thought, well, you know what? I know my worth. I know who I am. I know the kind of voice I've got. I know that this is what I'm supposed to do with my life for the rest of my life. I just I wasn't sure of what the next step would be, and sure enough, fate. She didn't. She she wasn't sleeping. She she conspired for you know the take that tour to happen. So take that invited you to support them. So it's another great support role here, but it was at a time when they'd come back after almost a decade apart. The the appetite for all things take that was huge. And then didn't they work you into their set as well as doing your own when you did the Lulu vocals for Relight My Fire? That's right. I mean, yeah. people who didn't have to do that, but they did. Mm -hmm. You know, the lads 
um, it was great that I was going to open for them. You know, a, a different kind of crowd to what I was used to. This was firmly and squarely in the pop arena, uh, screaming women and, 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 and everything. And screaming women, yeah. It is. It's like back in the day, the, the record companies used to refer to them as mums in leather trousers. <laughs> yeah, it was absolutely. absolutely. Of which, by the way, I'm one. <laughs> Aunt, aunt in leather trousers over here, but um, you know, at, at this time they brought their 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 daughters with them. Yeah, and that's a whole new audience that's experiencing you for the first time in some cases, or revisiting you with you know daughters and nieces, and yeah, your new ears are finding their way to your back catalogue. That's right. They, I mean, they they did not know. Um, who I was or if they had that maybe they heard a few things or whatever or um, they might have just heard shoulda woulda coulda and thought that was all there was to it but here I was with this opportunity to open doors to a whole new swathe of people and it worked it totally worked Um, it just took my career to a whole new level and then of course the whole prince thing happened and that took it to mm. another level still yeah um it, it's it's in those moments when you're kind of going through the 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 valleys that it's like you say when you've had that fear once you recognize a challenge as for what it is mm. a challenge if a door closes it's not the opportunities disappeared. It means the opportunity is going to come in through a window. Yeah, exactly. And a window be massive, as big as the door. Yeah. And that's what happened. Yeah. That is exactly what happened. But that's how you become tenacious and inventive and creative. And you have to, you have to, and also, you know, you can't work for 28 years. I mean, and not be challenged also by technology and the way that's revolutionized what we do and how we do it and but the thing is in amongst all of that you just have to have a really solid talent that can put itself everywhere and that's what you have with your voice and your ability to sing and write songs that's why you're still here and I, I'm so grateful for that because it's a gift that landed in my lap and I just chose to run with it um but you know you 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 have a responsibility to really look after it and hone. And you do, though, Bev. You don't drink. You don't party. You know, you never have. You um, are as close to an athlete in terms of your, um, your your diligence, in terms of how you train your muscle, your voice, as as anyone I've I've seen. It's in, for me. My voice is is. It's not just a tool that I can put down and you know. Mm. It's part of me. So in order to look after my voice in the best way I can, I have to look after me in the best way that I can. Mm. And that means, you know, um, staying away from certain things that could, you know, ruin my voice. I've seen people's voices get ruined because they partied way too hard. And that wonderful special thing has... Um, either damaged them or left them. You know, mm. we all remember the latter stages of Whitney when, yeah. um, I mean, I, I, it's, it wasn't that she was just partying. There was a whole bunch of stuff behind that and the the, tra- the, 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 the trauma and the, the tragedy behind it. But what, you know, getting on it did to her voice. And um, yeah. I never be that. And I've seen it time and time and time again, and um, I, ju- I just never, I never wanted to be that. That that was never going to be my story. Um, and and yeah, it, people call singers, you know, especially people big voices and that vocal athletes, because you do have to look after yourself in much the way that an athlete does. Yeah, and and it influences everything you eat, how you exercise, your sleep. Yeah. I mean, you you are 100% on it to make sure that you can preserve your, you know, the, the jewel in your crown, your voice. Yeah. That's it. And I remember, you know, another challenging time was when I, when I was just fastidious about looking after myself and 
taking care of my own voice and all the rest of it, 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 it did come at a cost. I did get a lot of um, pushback and, and ridicule and, and, and that kind of thing because I wasn't out, you know, partying and, 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 and raving. I mean, I, you know, I go out, obviously. But because... Yeah, but you weren't that kind of cartoon caricature pop star. But neither did you want to be, you know. No. And, and each to their own. If that's, you know, if you want to go and kind of, you know, enjoy your, your success in that way, fantastic. But there are consequences and you've always been really alive to that. Yeah, and and um, it, it meant that people would would um, well, they had things to say. The media certainly had things to say um, about me because I, I guess I wasn't someone they could easily get stories from. Because yeah, but it's not. But the thing is, though, it does pay you back in kind in other ways because you know you get it gets to the point where you're moving into musical theatre. Nobody's sat there going, "Can she do this? Can she be the professional that we need?" You know. But, you know, we've had bad experiences with pop stars in the past. Your reputation opened doors in that environment because you'd been so diligent in how you'd preserved yourself. Yeah, and, and, and that's where the, the payback came. It yeah. was, you know, yes, um, early on, it was difficult to read stuff about myself and thinking, that's not me, that's, that's not particularly pleasant why are you having a go at me I haven't done anything and that was the whole point they were like you haven't done anything <laughs> like ah oh, this is a problem but it paid it paid me back in in dividends because it then meant that I was fit enough strong enough well enough to be able to take on some of these other um creative challenges you know musical theatre and such that meant that I was already primed for them, you know. It, yeah. I, I have to kind of go, oh God, I better, I better stop drinking loads. I better stop doing all the other stuff. I, I, I was already in a good place to then take on those roles, yeah. and so I just took them on and enjoyed them with confidence as well, right? Because then you're confident that that you can deliver it as well. It's not about other people going, can you do it? It's about you going, can I do it? And yeah, you can. Big yeah, time. absolutely, absolutely. For my third and final question, mm -hmm. I want to, I want to, I want to experiment with some geography. Are you up for that? Yeah, let's go. Let's do it. We share um, a special place, you and I. I don't know if you know this, but Gas Nightclub in Cheltenham. Oh my god! So Bev, I used to work there. <laughs> what? I was on the bar. And then I'm reading up on your story, and I've known you for years, right? And I didn't know that that was where you f you heard your first record ever being played was on the dance floor at Gas Nightclub, which was the biggest club in Cheltenham, which is where you were studying for your degree and where I was born and raised. So we were probably even in the same room together for a couple of years because um, I worked there three nights a week. <laughs> I can't believe it! <laughs> Do you remember Steve Aspie and Henry Africa's? Yeah. Oh yeah. And I remember hearing your record there. So you must have been on the dance floor because it was white label, wasn't it? And he'd bring all these white labels in. And before his set, we'd be like, what you got tonight, Steve? What you got tonight? He was, you know, a real tastemaker in the area. He was. He was. I can't. This is, excuse me, while I'm sitting here blown away by this revelation. I know. I was bar supervisor on students' pound a pint night. <laughs> and I wasn't even old enough to be in there. I shouldn't have been working there. I'd lied about my age. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. I had so much fun there, though. But It was brilliant. Yeah. That, I mean, that was kind of your playground, I, I suppose, in terms of watching people respond to your music. Yeah. Oh, I got so excited hearing my own record. Mm. It was just the most exciting thing. I was like, you know, it's me, it's me. And then when I went back to uni, people would be like, I heard you, I heard your song. Oh, my God, you know, you're going to be famous. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I can't believe it. I can't believe it either, Bev. I was like, honestly, our world's have collided with that as even knowing but is that a special place for you and what other places warrant a significant place on your roadmap 
Oh, God. Well, Gas Nightclub for sure, for sure, for sure. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and then back home, uh, the place where I was discovered, it's not there anymore, but it is still an establishment. Uh, but it's changed names and changed hands about five million times. Um when I was uh, young, it was called Palomas, and that was where I was singing in the middle of Wolverhampton, and that was where I was eventually discovered. Were you? Yeah. By who? The same guy who went on to uh, uh, to to go into music publishing. He was the guy who saw me sing, age nineteen in Palomas and wanted to sign me and waited until I got to my final year of my degree to really get into discussions about signing the deal. So I signed to my first record label, uh, Dome, and then he left Dome to join Parlophone and wanted me to come with him. Ah, that's the connection. Got that's it. the connection. And, and then he left and went into music publishing. And I've just never forgotten that. I've never forgotten him, Mark Share, really, really lovely man, Aww. great ears, and to, I'll, I'll forever be grateful. That night in Palomas, he was there um, with a guy called Sinclair who had a hit record called Casanova that was yes. um, mashing up at the charts at the time. Yeah, really? Sinclair, yeah. was that his name? Sinclair, well, that's a nice name, Sinclair. I like it. Yeah, Sinclair was there. So he was uh, kind of the headline act and I was the local girl opening for him. And, and, and that led, to, that led to, to my deal and, and to where I am right now. To Blimey, day. Bev. So Palomas and Gas, two seminal venues. Not quite Prince's House at uh, Paisley <laughs> Park, but it helped to get you there. <laughs> Honestly, I mean... Yeah, they were they were the stepping stones. They were the stepping stones for me. I mean, there's been, you know, so many places that I I treasure and I revere. I mean, an, an, another one for me would be the first time I played the Royal Albert Hall in my own in my own right. Yeah, that's got to be pretty major. That was unbelievable. I finished the gig and wept. Did you? In front of the whole crowd, 5,000 people. I didn't care. I, I wept. I was, I knew the journey and I knew what it took to get there. Mm. Knew all that graft and all the people who had helped me and believed in me. And, you know, and I got to that point and I just, I don't know, it just overwhelmed me. <laughs> Did you run outside in the day and look up just to see your name above the venue? And yes. Have, have your photo taken? I would have. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I absolutely did. Because I was just so blown away that I was playing there. And was the, it not there where you picked up your Olivier, or have I got that wrong? Um, I picked up my Olivier at the Royal Albert Hall. There you go. I mean, it, it, the circles, it keep, it happens. You know, honestly, I, I, I'm, I mean, to get all kind of satiric and everything, just... The you, if you trust in the process and you, you can really manifest these things. You you truly can, because it's the same. Those those two big moments in my life happened in that one building, and I, I, I couldn't have written it. But somehow, I dreamt that these things would happen, and I somehow spoke these things into being, and. I just think that for anybody who, who who's listening in, you know, if you have a dream, just don't let people put you off it. Yeah. Keep trusting in that process. Sometimes it takes for, forever. You know, I've still got dreams that I've got now that I absolutely want to fulfill. And one day, one day, um, I can't say. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, would I be writing suggesting that Broadway was one of them? Broadway, absolutely Broadway. Um, you know, more feature films. I, 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 want for, I want to win a Tony. Oh, I can't believe that you wouldn't. What do you call, what is, what is it when you've won all of them? What's it called, an EGOT? 
an EGOT. An when EGOT. I that Jennifer Hudson had become an EGOT, yeah. uh, knowing where she'd started, you know, on X Factor, she didn't win it. She's one of the, you know, finalists or whatever. She was American Idol, wasn't she? American Idol. Yeah. Not. But then she went on to get, so an EGOT is an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar and a Tony. That's right. That's right. And I thought, I know your journey. Mm. I've watched your journey. And look at you go. Look at you fly. She's great, isn't she? I love her. She's fantastic. Yeah. I thought, she's doing it. I'm doing it. Yes. I'm doing it. Why not me? You know? Why not me? So, first up is the Tony. And then I'm going to snatch a Grammy. That's what I'm after as well. You know, I've got these goals and I fix them in my mind and I'm like, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. I am going after it big time. <laughs> and listen, I, I really don't doubt you for a second, Bev. I really don't. Because your CV tells me that everything you've put your mind to, you've pretty much pulled off. You shine your own light and you shine so bright and long may that continue. I look forward to the sixth chapter. And yes. if people want to come out and see you, you are doing the biggest tour of your career to date. Uh, you're touring all across, is it October and November? October and November, yeah. All across the UK. And for anybody that's that's listening, if you haven't seen Bev Live get a ticket now because it's a night you'll talk about for years to come. I, I believe when I'm on stage in sharing the love, sharing the joy, we have that euphoric experience together. Yeah. I want to see people home on cloud nine. That's what I, that's my job. That's what I intend to do. So yeah, come and see me. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, Bev, thank you so much. I never not love chatting to you. Um, and I could always go on for hours and hours. Um, but I know you've got dogs to feed, um, a husband to say hello to, and a Tony and a Grammy to win. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> All in the same breath, please. My huge thanks to Beverly Knight and her new album, The Fifth Chapter, is available to download now wherever you get your music. And tickets for a live show are also available, but I'm warning you now, it's almost sold out. There's just a handful left, so go get them while you can. She truly puts on the best of shows. And if you'd like to hear more conversations with some of the best singers, songwriters and performers out there, head over to our back catalogue. Hannah Waddingham's in there, Tom Grennan, Ray, Gary Barlow, Skin from Skunk and Nancy, Ella Henderson, Imelda May, Mick Hucknall, Charlene Spatiri, Sophie Ellis-Bexter, Jack Severetti and so many more. I'll be back on your feeds on Tuesday with another mini episode, revisiting some vintage conversations that reside in our cellar. Until then, thanks so much for your company. White Wine Question Time is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network.